Hi, I'm Beck. And I'm Khadija. We're members of the Stratford Festival Acting Company. And we are proud, happy, excited to bring you the Everyday Forum podcast, a Stratfest at home original showcasing thought-provoking discussions from the Stratford Festival's Me and Forum. The Stratford Festival's Me and Forum is like a festival within the festival designed to enhance and inform your experience through compelling discussions, exciting performances, and enlightening interactive multi-sensory events and workshops. Each episode will tell you who we're hearing from, the themes of the episode's featured forum event, and we'll also share some helpful definitions with you. We are here with a curated list of events from the 2023 season, bringing the stage to your home through this podcast. We're here to provide contextual insight. And to connect the conversation to wherever you might be. Or where you might be headed. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you chose. We're thrilled to facilitate this fusion of minds. Enjoy. I have a question for you, Khadija. Let's, let's As someone who, you write. I do. You write. Sometimes. Television, mostly, would you say? I write short films. I've, okay. I've, what I've had produced is short films, mm-hmm. and I have been attempting to break into TV. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is my question, based on some of the experience that we hear in this chat. Do you believe... I'm, ooh, I'm so curious. Okay, I hope I'm asking this right. Do you think, I'm going to say performers because that's the body that I understand the most. Do you think performers are intimidated by the writer? Like what's going on? What is the dynamic going on between actor and writer? Because I, I don't think it's um, forgettable. I don't think I don't think performers don't uh, clock a writer. What do you, do you think there's a world where... What do you think that relationship is? I think I love that Andrea and Morris both talk about moments where they've been in the room as a writer, mm-hmm. because I, as an actor, mm-hmm. <laughs> can think of moments where the writer has been in the room and it has either made me feel like I have a direct link to the holy grail. I that... see like glowing sores speaking. Yes, yes, exactly. It's like sitting at grandma's knee, you know, <laughs> where it they are the wealth of wisdom and any questions that you have that you may not have been able to take to the director or didn't consider to take to the director mm-hmm. could potentially go directly to the writer. Okay, it, it grandma's knee or grandma's stool, and you can see the counter, so you know oh, all the ingredients yeah, that are going yes, in. Yes, 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 <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, okay, now I'm putting on my writer brain mm-hmm. or my writer hat. Oh, it's uh, it's nice. Oh, thanks, thanks. That's Did you cute. see this adornment it here? You, yeah. Thank you. I think that the process of writing can be so insular, mm-hmm. so that so when you invite other people into the room into the kitchen with you to see the ingredients mm-hmm. then you get you get excited and start talking about moments of inspiration and little nuggets that that connect to one another that aren't necessarily on the page and may not necessarily be actable or actionable rather but they still hold some weight mm-hmm. they're still tasty oh i was thinking of um do you know the podcast 
is it called Song Explorer or Song Exploder? I don't know it. Okay, they take a band and they listen to the song and then you hear all the elements and sometimes someone will say, yeah, the the alarm on my phone inspired mm. this little riff in the song. Mm-hmm. And I and I look forward to a world where we hear from the playwrights what was the what was the blue green moment yeah. when you had to walk away oh. from from the typewriter or laptop or pen um and you know yeah. was it the seagull trying to get the waffle <laughs> off of the fence or wh- or what was that moment yeah was it the creak of the door as you walk into your parents house you know it's those little things that on paper don't really resonate but as it's the writer's job to create that resonance around those tiny moments. And we get to hear about some of those moments. I'm thinking of Morris and his sound canceling mm. uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Who are we talking to today? Well, today we are talking with Andrea Scott and Morris Panich, I think two of Canada's finest writers. And they're led in conversation with Keith Barker. And we, you know how I, how I feel about Keith. <laughs> <laughs> There it is. That's our little laugh for you, Keith. Yeah, we love you, Keith. <laughs> we love you. Yeah, this it's so beautiful that Keith encourages them to start with a story mm-hmm. as their storytellers and having them share the stories of how they got to be where they were, how they, you know, it's just so inspiring. I just realized we said, who are we talking with? Because this one does feel like you're having a conversation yeah. with somebody, like you're sitting at the table. Yeah. We go from the their beginnings Mm -hmm. which are so juicy and fun Mm -hmm. um we talk through relationships with designer director actor dramaturg we get into the writing process and then we even talk about agents so i think it's a really honest what is it like what do farm restaurants do nose to nose Nose to to tail tail. nose to tail (laughs) it's a nose to tail chat yeah and i think beyond the nose even (laughs) is the aspirations andrea talking about this determination to have a play on broadway Broadway. that is and the assuredness with which she speaks what does she say she has a gimlet eye (laughs) for for, you know i (laughs) want what are what do people want (laughs) what a brave what a brave question and and a brave declaration to say that out loud I I, love the brand of confidence in this chat yes oh yeah yeah amongst all three (laughs) of them I was gonna say yeah Andrea's brand of confidence and Morris's brand of confidence and Keith's Mm. and you know Keith talking about his ego in in the way that he you know approached his uh representation yes this 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 conversation got me really fired up, which was really interesting because I was lying in bed as I was listening to it and had my phone jotting down notes along the way. And I was just vibrating, mm. you know? And not just uh, how they work through these elements from a personal level, but uh, let's take a big picture moment and talk about triggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the relationship with potentially triggering material, which I think... I think how each of them interprets what's triggering is is really fascinating too. I love what Morris says about it. He says he says flat Let's out, go. I love a trigger. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I think some of us get to yeah. more than others. Yeah. Or or uh, yeah, can wear that differently and offer it differently. Totally. And then the hustle, the chat about the hustle, mm-hmm. uh, r- in connection to agents, but also the the work. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really brave a brave chat to have because sometimes 
uh, I we tend to be a bit polite and say we were really lucky and this happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But sometimes you got to bust down a door. Oh my gosh! And these are people that have busted down some doors. Yeah. Wow. Okay, my last thing to listen for is lessons from Picasso. <laughs> Should we jump in? Let's do it. Okay, see you on the other side. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Forum Academy series, which is on Sunday afternoons during our special themed weeks that we're doing here. It's a beautiful day today. I haven't been outside since around nine, but I'm sure all of you have, and it's stunning out there. And so on a beautiful day like today, I would like to acknowledge the ancestral guardians of this land and its waterways, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Attawandaronk. Today, many Indigenous people call this land home and act as its stewards, and the responsibility extends to all of us to share and care for this land for generations to come. And I'm going to keep these bios short because you don't want to hear me talk, you want to hear them. Uh, Andrea Scott is an award-winning playwright and television writer, and she just completed working in the writer's room on the 17th season of Murdoch Mysteries. Morris Panitch is arguably Canada's most celebrated playwright and director, and he is the creator and director of Frank, this year's Frankenstein Revived. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go. It's awesome. Keith Barker is our moderator today, and he is the director of new play development here at the Stratford Festival. And he is also the former artistic director of Native Earth, and he's also a playwright. So please join me in welcoming to the stage, Andrea, Morris, and Keith. everybody sorry i did tell i said to morris i was like oh the second pot we had a earlier coffee and i was like the second coffee is much tastier and he was like okay i'm gonna go get one so more spanish you better be right welcome welcome well it's great to be here with all of you um playwrights and writers i just told them at the front door so they may they may have a pause. I, I like to start these things by asking you to start, because we are storytellers and because we're in a place that's all about storytelling, I always love to start with maybe, as playwrights or as creators, maybe you have a story that you want to start off with, something about being a playwright, something you've either experienced yourself or someone that you love that's also a playwright has experienced, maybe a thoughtful story, funny story, something story. Okay, so my name is Andrea Scott. I am a playwright and screenwriter. I have quit being a, a screenwriter or playwright many times because it can be so frustrating. But as it was mentioned by Julie, I have worked on Murdoch Mysteries for three seasons. And what that did is it allowed me a level of comfort that I didn't have as a playwright. And so for the very first time in my life, I'm 52 years old, I went to New York City last year in October and I decided to give myself the trip you always want to give yourself if you are a person who loves theater. So I went there for seven days and I saw nine Broadway plays and stayed at a nice hotel and I ate well and I, I went to the Guggenheim and I walked the High Line and I went to some fancy little like hidden places and uh, it was absolutely incredible. And what it did is as somebody who lives in Toronto and comes here frequently and Shaw, I've seen a lot of theater and it just opened my eyes to the theater that we have in this country. And I was thinking when I got back to Canada, I want, I want to be on Broadway. I want, I want my, I want to have a play on Broadway is what I thought. And my, my brain just started in, into overdrive. I was like, well, what kind of play could I write 
that would be marketable. What, what would they want? What can I do here? And I got back in late October and things were pretty dodgy in the United States politically, like not as bad as they are now. Uh, but it's so weird. I was watching a news story and I had a moment of, oh my goodness, when are we ever going to have peace again? When is democracy going to be something that is valued in this country? And on November the 2nd at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon, it was like, I'm not religious, but it did feel like God reached down and put an idea in my head. And I literally was sitting in my apartment and I went, oh, yes, yes, Andrea, that, yeah, you should definitely write a play about Jackie Robinson playing uh, baseball for the Montreal Royals in 1946 and how it changed the future of civil rights and sports forever. That's a, that's a great idea. <laughs> and I mean... I immediately just did a deep dive into Jackie Robinson, uh, American politics, the civil rights movement, Montreal, the two solitudes. And I wrote, I think, 12, 15 pages within a couple of days, contacted a theater, pitched the idea. They fell in love with it and they have commissioned it. And I've already written a second draft. I thought you were going to say somebody already was writing the same play. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's you know, usually my that's story. generally probably what is happening. Somebody probably is writing or a music or the musical or a musical version yeah. of it. Yeah, or the movie's coming out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to think of. Um, I I was uh, I was working on a play in Vancouver. I was I wrote it with John Mann from Spirit of the West. It was a story about him uh, uh, developing. Uh, early stage Alzheimer's. Well, actually, it wasn't the Alzheimer's part. It was uh, him, go the, the play was about him going through uh, uh, colon cancer. And it was very funny. And he wrote, he wrote a whole album about it. And then he wanted to make it into a play. So I did a book for him on it. And I was going to direct it. And a friend of mine, uh, I cast it. Uh, but I cast it, I didn't actually cast it live. I cast it from people I knew and uh, and one person I didn't really know. But anyway, a friend of mine was at a party and this young woman who was in the show, he came up to her and he said, I hear you're working on a show, uh, on this show. And she said, yeah, isn't it great? And he, she said, and he said, you're going you're gonna to be directed by Morris Panitch. And she said, he's directing it? I thought he was dead. <laughs> so luckily I have a few more years. <laughs> Knock on wood, though, yeah. Uh, I would say, for me, as I was directing my own play, and I can say this because it was a friend of mine that was on the other side, and I had this scene where the wife is out yelling at this fox, and in the moment, she runs off to get a gun because she wants to scare the fox off. And I had the husband right behind her, and it's this beautiful monologue, but I realized when I directed it that he was totally upstaging her because he was up there. You see him walk on and she's having this like beautiful monologue and then suddenly there's someone in the back and you're like, who's that? And, and it totally drew attention. And so I said to him like, hey, I, I need to cut that line. Like I need to cut that stage direction. The, 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 the father can't come out. He can't. So he, he's like, well, I need, to, I need to hear those lines so I know what's happening. I was like, yeah, no, no. Okay, so why don't we have it that you're... I just need you off stage. Like, what if you're at the kitchen window and you look out the window and you can hear, but you're watching it, but you're off stage, but you're watching it. And then you see her run to the garage and you come out. 
He's like, yeah, no, I wouldn't hear. Like, if I was in the kitchen, I wouldn't <laughs> oh hear it. God, and I was like, this actor? And I was like, but <laughs> can we just act it? Like, <laughs> and he, we got into this debate and went on for like 20 minutes. And I just trying to convince him. I was like, I just technically need you off stage. He's like, well, you wrote it as a stage. The, the playwright wrote it as a stage direction. I said, well, the director's going to go home tonight and call the playwright and tell him he was wrong. <laughs> so that was our moment. It was just like... <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, my the rest of the cast was trying not to laugh because I was <laughs> becoming quite uh, animated about it. So, so yeah. Why don't we start like from the beginning? How did you? How did you? What 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 got you into playwriting? How, how did it start for you? And how's it going? Uh, how's it going? Uh, <laughs> I uh, grew up in London, Ontario, and I got into theater because I had a a, a spare. Um, and uh, was like wandering the halls, lonely as a cloud. And the drama teacher, Ms. McDonald, saw me and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I have a spare. She's like, you should take my drama class. And I was like, okay. But I'm, I mean, I never had the whole, oh, I always knew I wanted to be an actor. I would watch these shows or any, it was, it was not that. It was not that at all. I just took a drama class in high school, really liked it. What I had really wanted to do is I wanted to be, again, uh, citing my age I wanted to be Connie Chung um, mm. because I grew up in a family that really loved the news and 60 Minutes and all of that and I would look at Connie Chung because there were no black uh, news anchors at the time and I looked at her and that's what I wanted to do so I was just taking this theater class as a lark you know something to do because Ms. McDonald asked me to and then I ended up really liking it and I, I was taking a television and broadcasting program at HB Beale Secondary School in London Ontario but then ended up applying for Ryerson and McGill and U of T when I was leaving and ended up at Arendale which is in Mississauga it's U of T and started acting mainly because I thought I should learn how to be rejected professionally in the world. And also, I, I had decided I wasn't going to be an actor. I, I, I graduated with a degree in theater, but my plan was when I got my master's that I was going to do my PhD so I could be a professor and teach students about theater. But then I was like, but shouldn't you have some practical experience? So maybe you should get out there and you should audition. And so I did. I, after I got my master's degree, I started acting and got a bunch of parts and then realized that I, I didn't think I really wanted to go back and get my PhD and become a professor. So I started acting and I loved it. But then I started to not love it because the roles weren't challenging and they were obvious and boring. And I remember saying I could write better than this. And then a voice said, well, why don't you? So I did. And that's how I started writing. And that was I started writing 10 years ago. So I haven't been doing it that long. I was a professional actor for a very long time and I really loved it. But I felt like some of the roles were limited for people like women of color. They they were there just to uh, advance the storyline of the protagonist, which, which was usually a white man or white woman. And I thought I, c I can write stories where they are three dimensional and uh, flawed characters who are colored. So that's how I started writing. And I would write my plays and then I would apply for grants and then I would apply for the Fringe Festival and Summer Works and then I would get in and then I would win awards and then nobody would program my work. And so I got bitter and angry and quit acting and quit theater and decided to be a TV writer in 2018. And you really never quit theater. I didn't quit. I didn't actually quit theater. I thought I, w I thought I would. Like what basically happened was the thing that always happens when you leave someone, they want you back and they want you back badly. And that's what happened with theater is I left 
I said, I'm done. I got a TV agent so that I could start getting booked on TV shows as a writer. And I got two calls, one from Neptune Theater, the other one from uh, Nightwood Theater saying that they wanted to produce my plays. So um, one of my plays called Control Damage, which is about Viola Desmond, got produced at Neptune Theater. And then another play called Every Day She Rose, which was with Nick Green, who had that wonderful play, Casey and Diana. Uh, We wrote a play together that got produced that year, which was the year before the pandemic in 2019 and that's 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 where i am right now i'm just like writing plays and writing tv shows and and loving stratford well in that neptune production it was the one that well not the one but also carried over to the grand right it's a different production it's a very different production. it's a very different production i yeah i wrote a play called uh, control damage about viola desmond's unfortunate situation that happened in 1947 and it did very well it sold out its three-week run before it even opened, which was uh, remarkable because I'm not from there. And and then the Grand Theater decided that they also wanted to produce it because it was like hometown girl does good. Uh, the Grand Theater is the first place I ever saw a play in in my life with Philip Aiken, and it was it was a it was a wonderful experience to see my play in Halifax and and then in London. And and my hope is that one day it'll be seen in Toronto. Great, Morris. Um. Hmm. I think uh, it's so hard to say because you start in so many different ways, you know, and you're in and out of it. Some, as Andrew was saying, you kind of like you're with it for a while, and then you go away from it, and and even from a, I think I, I think I was always interested in spectacle because my when I was seven, my grandmother died, and there was this huge Ukrainian funeral, and I had never seen anything like it in my life. I was so engrossed in it like for all the wrong reasons i wasn't sad at all i just saw it as fantastic spectacle and it went on for three days and i think it kind of like infected me with the idea of like drama and spectacle and of course death i became fascinated by death too and i'm through you know you know junior school and i i loved acting and in high school i i acted and I was the only person in my drama, in my grade 12 drama class. So they had to invent things for me to do. And uh, it, was a, it was a Catholic high school. And, and I'd been watching a lot of spectacle on television. I'd been watching like cheerleading squads from colleges. And so I developed a kazoo band. And before I turned around, I had 75 members and 10 percussion. And I created these huge spectacles in the auditorium and at the stadium for like, uh, people were like, what is this? Like no other high school had anything like it. And then I went to, and then I, I grew up in Edmonton. So, you know, there weren't a lot of theater opportunities there. But I, when I was like a, just a kid, like, you know, 15, 16, I, I grew up in a very uh, working class family and nobody was really interested in the arts. So I went off on my own and I would go to ballet and I would go to the theater and I actually became an usher at the Citadel Theater. And I would watch af- after you uh, after you did your ushering and took coats, you got to w- sit at the back and watch the plays. And of course, I was completely brain damaged from it. I couldn't ever think about anything else. And so I kind of of became obsessed and then back and forth. And I went to university and in university I was, I was, I was in the playwriting program and, um, 
I always tell this story, but I was in the playwriting program and and the theater program had arranged to do some plays that the playwrights had done. And this director, this student director from the theater program, she was directing my play that I'd written. And I I was watching this thing, a rehearsal, and I was like, what? Some actor was going, why am I saying this line? And I said to her, just tell her to say it. Like, she doesn't have to know why. And she said, do you know anything about acting? And I was like, no, I don't care. Just tell her to say the line. She said, go home and read Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen right now. So I went home and I read this book and I was completely enamored of like the idea of acting and what it was. And it became, suddenly became a religion to me and I wanted to be an actor. So I went to London and went to acting school in London. And when I came back, I was acting and I had a, a pretty successful acting career in Vancouver. Um, but I always felt that acting was a very limited, uh, it had limited um, intellectual potential for me. I wanted something more and, and also couldn't really control my future. Acting is incredibly humiliating and, and it's a constant battle to be noticed and to be seen. I mean, of course, playwriting is too, but in a different kind of way. It's not such a public humiliation. Until, of course, your play is done in front of people, and then it's a huge public humiliation. <laughs> but, and then, but one day I was sitting, uh, my partner Ken McDonald is here, and uh, Ken, uh, we've been together for 43 years, and one day uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I said, um, I'm going to write a musical, um, and when you come home, you can write the lyrics. And he's like, what? No, no, that's not going to happen. So he went off, he went off shopping with his friend, Sheila McCarthy, who's now, I don't know, quite famous. Um, and I, he came back and I had lyrics on the piano for him and he's like, I can't write this. And anyway, we eventually we wrote a musical about the nucle about nuclear war. It was a kind of a, a comedy, a comedy musical, but, and it was an enormous hit in Vancouver and it traveled the country, not in, it wasn't a huge, necessarily huge hit throughout the country, but it did quite well. And then after that, I became more and more interested in playwriting. And then my friend Larry Lillo, who's since passed, and he was running the Grand Theater at the time, and he said, um, have you got any ideas for shows? And I said, yeah, I want to write a musical about Jack the Ripper. And he was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Do that. And so I spent, I don't know how many weeks going, this is a terrible idea. This is actually, he's a horrible man. There's nothing redeeming about him. I, we don't even know who he is. <laughs> like, whatever. Anyway, I, you know, can you imagine writing bouncy tunes to dead hookers? It was just like a bad idea. So, but in the meantime, AIDS had started in, in, in becoming like a really bad thing. This, we're talking 84, 85, but, and um, people were getting sick, and I started to think about death and about people dying, friends dying especially, and I just wanted to trash that idea, and so I started writing a play. I started writing seven stories, and um, it, was a, it was a play about a man contemplating, not necessarily suicide, but what the meaning of life was. So I sent that to Larry. And he didn't answer me, but he got back, when he got back to Vancouver for a visit, I, I arranged a staged reading of it. And we read it and everyone loved it. And Larry, I said, said Larry, what do you think? And he said, I, why would you write a play about suicide? And I said, well, I, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. And he said he wouldn't do it. So then I took Bill Millard out to lunch, who ran the arts club at the time. And I said, I'm going to buy your lunch. You're going to do this play. And he was like, oh, Morris. And I said, no, no, you're going to do this play. And here's the cast. I'm directing. Ken's designing. It's over. And I got up and walked out. But he did it. Wow. 
And um, it was a big hit, and it traveled the country, and it was a big hit in Toronto. And, and then I just started, you know, kept writing plays after that. And I kind of eventually, and I directed a lot of them myself, partly for expediency, because there were, there's a huge translation that happens between uh, text and stage, as you all know. And, and, and so one of the things that I became used to was skipping that step. Maybe mistakenly sometimes, maybe there would have been better to have another voice in the room, but Ken was there always. And also, it became apparent that this would happen because I would start writing a play and Ken would read like the first act and he'd say, uh, what does it look like? And I was like, I don't know. And he'd say, well, it, it's got to look like something. So we'd talk about the set design. So it just became like an evolutionary thing. Um, and so... Um, but actually, recently, I've been interested in other people directing my work. So I have a show coming up, for instance, uh, at the Tarragon in the fall mm. called Withrow Park, and I asked Jackie Maxwell to direct it. Mm. And I'm scared. Yeah. Not because she's a terrible director, because she's not, but because it's it, it's just one step removed. And I said, oh, Jackie, don't worry. I won't be around. And <laughs> I don't know how true that's going to be. <laughs> Wow, yeah. Um, but I've, I've written, I think I've written 40 plays now. And, and I have many in drawers. I have many, well, not drawers anymore. I have many in files, files my computer that, computer. you know. And you get these weird responses, like, like somebody will love your show. Like I, this artistic director in, in Edmonton, he did Gordon, my play Gordon. And then he, he wrote me and said, we'll do anything of yours. So I sent him this play in one of my plays in my file, and Crickets. Never, never heard from him. I'm like, oh, clearly you won't do any play of mine. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then let's talk about uh, two things. Ian Hannah Mansing was that to me. Like I used to, I used to practice at breakfast. I was like, Ian Hannah Mansing, CBC News. Like I just loved his name. I was just Keith Barker does not ring off the tongue quite like Ian Hannah Mansing. I was like, so sweet. And and in terms of like, I directed my first play, my play for the first time and that experience, I'd love to know with you two, what is your experience with, what is your relationship? Talk, maybe talk about your relationship with actors, with directors, with designers. Like, how does that, how does that work in your work? Well, I've learned, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who likes to trust the people that I've hired because what, for me, what had happened was I I didn't I didn't come up into into this industry the way some people did like I didn't go to the National Theater School in in playwriting and 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 then get commissioned and then and then had like the development room and then have everything taken care of I started writing plays and then applying for summer works which is a curated festival which meant I had to raise my own money which meant I had to hire my own people and I learned that what you need to always do is vet the people that you hire because just because they're a wonderful person to go for a drink with or have dinner with or go to a play with doesn't mean that they're going to be great in the room is what I found out and what I needed to learn and I found out the hard way is that sometimes people actors sometimes directors when they're in the room can be quite sometimes cruel sometimes uh dictatorial toxic. toxic and it's something that just kind of basically made me clutch my pearls, if you will, when I saw people who I liked personally behaving badly, like an actor making another actor cry, like making an actor go to the go into the bathroom, lock the door and cry. I, I remember just being like, because I used to be an actor, I was like, well, that's just unacceptable. You don't do that. You never do that. An actor uh, seeing another actor on stage with them during a performance freeze and forget their lines 
and then not help them. That kind of destroyed me. I was like, how could you do that? It just felt cruel. And so I learned that you should vet your actors, even if you like them personally. And directors, you know, it would be great if you could just all be on the same page regarding your work, because I have not directed my own work. I feel like it is a skill that I just don't have. Mm. And I want to trust that the person who wants my work can can execute it beautifully. But I have on a few occasions found that sometimes we're not on the same page and they create something without consulting me. And that has not been good. But then I've also had like mind meld with um, a, a director who just got everything that I was doing. But that person also, like even before rehearsal started, was like, let's go for lunch. Here's my binder. And it's like post-it notes and they have questions and, and they are like there's open communication and there's transparency. And you're always free to come into the room when we're in rehearsals. And I always want to know what you think. And then there are the people who are radio silent and you don't hear from them at all. And you know that they have an idea for your play that they don't want to share with you because they already know you're going to say no. And they don't want to handle and deal with you saying no to them. And that has been quite uh, eye-opening and frustrating and because I am a woman I always want to be agreeable and I don't want to be called a bitch so I don't want to be seen as difficult and hard to work with and I also like to be hands-off but I have I've I, I haven't been a bitch yet I haven't like decided okay well I'm gonna stop trying to be nice all the time I haven't been able to shed that yet but I, I have a couple of things coming up and I have directors I trust and actors that I love and I'm not really all that worried but it is something that I have to keep in mind moving forward because I still feel very guilty about what happened with that one play where those actors didn't get along and one was bullying the other one and the director was not very good at having a strong vision and was bullied by the actors so your play can be beautiful and perfect in your mind but it, it can be destroyed by sometimes the wrong toxic people who have it but then you know sometimes even if you really do vet people if you know them very well as performers there can be big surprises in a room and people can change over time i've worked with actors who 10 years later are insane mm. you know like they were fine and then they're crazy or they were good and then they're bad yep. or they could remember lines and then they can't. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 you really have no way of knowing that you just have to hope that you're in a good room and that you inspire people. I'm not, and also I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't know that directing my own work has necessarily always been a good idea. I feel that, as I say, that was kind of done out of expediency and maybe a certain degree of protection about it. Mm -hmm. Cause I felt nervous about the secondhand look at it and, and, and I want to trust people, but it's hard to find those people, mm -hmm. yes. you know? Also, can I just say I'm a very good director? <laughs> yeah. So not to blow my own horn, but like often you think, is there anybody really who could direct this better than me? Like, and that's, and that could be true sometimes. And yeah. sometimes that, you know, might be the case, but also, you know, the work that I write is kind of very unique in terms of like how people approach it. And I've watched so many trashy productions of my sh plays of people who really fundamentally don't understand what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to create a theatrical world that is really unique and different. And some people will approach it way too naturalistically. Mm. And so you look at it and go, you didn't really get what I was trying to do because those people wouldn't talk that way if they were living in a naturalistic world. And so it's, it's a, it's tricky. Yeah, it is. It is. 
is the thing about writing plays and then people doing them, you kind of, you put your intention, you feel that all the writing is there and that it's very clear. And I've, as I found out, I've seen a couple productions of my plays where I was like, what happened? <laughs> Who thought this? This is not my play. Like I it was like, it, I actually don't recognize. Or what's people on will stage. go purposely out of their ways to make a showcase for themselves. Yeah. So you're, or they go not, against your vision, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, I see what you're doing here, but I'm gonna do the opposite. And you're right. like, why? Right. Because they, I don't know, like it's a calling card or something like that, or someone. And this is the thing I find sometimes directors hold back because they want to surprise because they're like if i say to you you're you're not going to be on my side but if i surprise you and i show you all the things i've done you're gonna you're gonna love it you're gonna love it and i'm like no no i didn't one no, of the I weirdest things one of the weirdest things um i found is that if another director is directing one of my plays i'm not, i was when i talk about directing my own plays, i'm talking about premieres i'm not talking about subsequent yeah, yeah. productions but when somebody does direct a subsequent production they don't even call nope. they don't you know, you go, why won't you, why won't you call me and ask me why I wrote the play or any information you might need? Because you're Morris Panitch? Because I think someone would be like, hello, Morris. I don't know, but I mean, I mean, I've even written people and said, if you have any questions, if you feel like reaching out, please reach out yep. because I have a lot of information. A, I've directed it before. B, I wrote it. So I might be able to help you if you have questions. Nothing. Yeah. It's like, wow, okay, well, don't ask. Well, I remember being in the room um, for the first day of rehearsal for a play and the director is just standing there pontificating about the meaning of my play and <laughs> obviously this is what second act is and we're going to do this and we're going to, and I was just like, none of that is right. None of that is true. But, you know, you can't say that in the room in front of everybody because the first day of rehearsal, this is, if you could ever get a chance to be invited to the first day of rehearsal of a play, you should be, you should go because it's, Everybody in the company is there. Like, like the receptionist is there. The the head of marketing is there, and so the room is filled with all of these people. And the director is holding court and and talking and 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 then you're as a playwright, you're just standing there hoping they'll let you speak because that's what happened in my situation. And I was barely allowed to speak. I actually remember trying to say something, and they looked at me like, "Oh, right, you're still here." And I was like, "Yeah, this is this is going to be fun." Yeah, I've had that where it's like uh, the director. And meant it as a joke, but they're like, the playwright's in the room, the playwright's in the room, everybody, the playwright's in the room. And then everyone turns to you and is like, yeah. And you're like, hey. Hi. Yeah. I think, I think it's even worse in film and television because um, I, have, I, I don't have a lot of experience in that, but I wrote a little web series that went to Sundance a couple years ago and nobody wanted to talk to me nobody even knew who i was it was like the directors the actors mm -hmm. the cinematographer everybody i was like you're an nobody. afterthought you are an exactly. afterthought as a writer on television yeah yeah absolutely well yeah. even if you look at the unions and the way the theater is set up here yeah like stage managers and actors have equity there's a bunch of unions everything is the playwrights are at the very bottom and I've had playwrights in new play development e email me or call me and say, can you just make sure that I'm invited to first day? Do you, can someone just make sure that I get an invite or that I get opening night tickets? Right. Mm -hmm. Because they are an afterthought, which is the craziest idea mm -hmm. that every, the only reason we're all here in the room right now is because someone's actually created this thing. And then, then it becomes about the director's vision and the actors. And I understand that those are important aspects. But in terms of being a playwright, you have so much value to give. But I do feel sometimes people are intimidated and, and, and not sure what to ask you because they, 
on some level may feel that you're going to impede on their vision or I have certain thoughts about this and we may not agree on that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel like the, in, in any of those discussions you've had with people about your work, has it been contentious or is, do you feel like you have to convince people or, or do you feel like it's... It depends on who they are. Like I had a car, uh, they were going to do a production line of the dishwashers at Birmingham Rap and I met with the producer. British people are horrible, by the way. And she, I'm sorry if you're British, I really apologize. I'm talking about British producers. So this guy takes me to one of these fancy clubs, right? And he says, um, we're going we're gonna, to, uh, we're hiring um, David uh, Essex to play the lead. And I, uh, isn't that a brilliant idea? And I said, no, actually it's not. Um, he, he, he's not an actor. And he said, what are you talking about? He played the lead in, uh, he was the original Che Guevara in Avida. And I said, yeah, but that's a musical. Dishwashers requires acting. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, no, it requires acting. Trust me. And I gave him this whole list of things that I thought the part needed. He didn't listen to any of them. He hired David Essex. Disaster. The guy didn't understand the play at all. I don't blame David Essex. I'm sure he was just trying to do, but this producer had no interest in what I had to say about the play at all. None. He just, that's what they were going to do. But this was policy also because he was a marquee name and that you run into that where you go, this person isn't right for the part and it doesn't matter. They're going to do it because mm-hmm. that's, what's going to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. They think. A week before opening of my play, that was, directed by somebody who didn't consult with me at all. Uh, I got, it was like, I was uh, in the writer's room of Murdoch and I generally try not to look at my phone when I'm working. Uh, but I happened to just kind of flip it over to see what the time was. And I saw that there was a message from this artistic or this director and I couldn't help but start reading it. And it was a long email. And this is a week before opening. And first it started off like, over the top, flowery, complimentary. I was like, oh no, this, is, this isn't good. Especially since you haven't been in touch with me for five weeks. And uh, it, it, it was basically, hey, you're amazing. So glad you're able to come to the first day of rehearsals. This is what's been happening. And I'm really proud of what I've done. I think you're gonna love it. However, there's a nagging feeling that I might've done some stuff that you may not like so what i would like to propose is that maybe possibly you could come here before opening night and watch it so that you can let me know if there are things that i should change and i'm like oh he knows he knows he effed up and i was like i thought no 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 I'm not I'm not going to save I'm not going to let you blame the problems that you know are coming on me because what's going to happen is if i did like theater wasn't going to pay for me to go there early and put me up for a couple of days so that I could see the play before opening. So I was like, no, 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 you need to, you made that bed. You need to lie in it. And I said, you're right. A lot of people are going to be coming to see this play because they have read the play already because it's been published for a couple of years and they know what to expect and they love and know me and have known me for many years and uh, good luck. And when I saw this person on opening night, I, I was not happy. I was not happy with what this person did to my play and I had to have the poker face and be very polite and conciliatory. And, and then we were having champagne afterwards with the cast. And I was like, so it's going to be really weird. Not, not working on the play anymore. Huh? Like I just couldn't talk to him about the play afterwards. I found out like from many people around Toronto that if he saw them and and knew that they knew me, he'd be like, so have you talked to Andrea? Because I don't think she liked it. I don't think she liked the play at all. Have you, have you talked to her? And 
people were like <laughs> so it is um it is a weird dynamic and it Andrew, is you see you need to direct your own plays i don't know if i can uh, <laughs> i think it's that's a why skill. anyway we're dissing people and we shouldn't because it's t- it's a tough job. It is, but we we are talking about yeah, how yeah. to make it a better job. Yeah, yeah. Have communication yeah. with the playwright. We are the ones who created the work. Maybe you want to ask us a question. Right now. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well, here, <laughs> here's it. Like, I think all these things can be true at once. I think, yeah. On one level, it's it's great to hear how complicated it is to be a playwright. I I think lots of people. I talk to lots of people who send me their plays all the time who are like, this is great, here it is, this is it, it's done. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's a first sign of like, of, of, of something it was like, well, that should be a, a dialogue we have, like, you know, in terms of that. And in terms of that, like lots of people have not had the opportunity to work with a dramaturge. Mm-hmm. Maybe you guys could talk about your relationships with dramaturgs. Do you believe them? Do you like them? Do you, do you find them helpful? Do you find them not? Because if you're directing your own work or not directing your own work, there are outside... There are sometimes it's a partner, sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's a close colleague that that looks at your work and helps you helps guide it. Like how does how does that work in your processes? I've loved having a dramaturg. Like I, I mean, I wrote the the three plays that I produced myself that were at Summerworks were plays that I worked on without any help or support. And I remember like the the one play that got me on the cover of Now magazine and got me like all these wonderful goodies, including a residency here, was a play that was called Don't Talk to Me Like I'm Your Wife. And it was about Matahari. And when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, man, this play would have been brilliant if I had a dramaturg. Like to have somebody else look at it and say, why don't you move this here? Maybe you need to cut this. And why did you write that? I don't think it's quite clear. Asking the right questions that you're just not going to organically think of yourself. I think having a dramaturg is, for me, is invaluable. I know that sometimes you can like create something and then do multiple drafts without support. Not everyone needs a dramaturg, but I... I think they're invaluable and they have helped every single script I have ever written and I would never move forward without one. I have, I always had this thing where I had this jury, I called them my jury and there were like five, six, seven people in my head who told me how, what, what about my play and they would be, they would change depending on, you know, one of them at one time was my brother and there was another one that was, you know, there were different people in my head who would tell me how, whether I was doing well or not. And, you know, I depended on that a lot and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really worked with dramaturgy a little bit, sometimes, you know, badly and sometimes well. Um, I had this production that was coming up in uh, at the arena stage in Washington and um, Molly Smith, who runs it, she called me and she said, um, I want you to work with this dramaturg from Ireland. And I was like, okay. And then I went to bed that night and I was so angry. I was like, what the fuck? Why am I working with a dramaturg? I said, I, and th- I got up in the morning and said, I, I've written all these plays. Why would I work with a dramaturg? You know, I, I said, you know, David Mamet wouldn't work with a dramaturg. And then I thought, he should. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a dramaturg. So I thought, okay, I'll, just, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I got on the phone with this guy and he was brilliant. He was mm. just... Because he was the kind of dramaturg who talked to you like a shrink, like a good shrink. He wouldn't tell you what to do. He would just say, what are you trying to do? What, you know, bring out the best in your work. He used this phrase that I really love and I use repeatedly now. He would call stuff, um, uh, 
well, I've gone completely blank now. Um, the vestigial, this. Anyway, it means that you're too connected to the work you've originally written, and you need to get away from that work in order to keep moving on. Yeah. Because he, because he would, he would say you're, you're. Um, I think it is vestigial. It's keeping vestiges of the, of the work that you've done to move forward and he would always say you're being too vestigial and I love that note because it makes me think do I really need that information do I really need that writing I think a good dramaturg as I say would be like a good shrink or somebody somebody would ask you the right questions but not tell you how to write your play yeah yeah I, for me it was like Donna Michelle St. Bernard who's a brilliant playwright uh, nominated Semenovich like she had said to me she just asked me questions so like in my first play, she's like, "Do you want the? Do you want everyone to think the husband killed the wife?" I'm like, "No." She's like, "Yeah, that's what it. When I read it, that's what I. That's what I get." And so she say here and here and here, and I would go back and make those little adjustments so that people didn't believe that the husband killed the wife. The wife, mm -hmm. wife, the wife passes away, and and little things like that. And then Bob White, who was here before, who who was in my job prior, gave me one note in my second play. And he he sat me down. I did the playwrights retreat. And he's like, I've got one note for you. I was like, okay. He's like, why isn't the dad angry? He's like, because I wrote a play about suicide as well. And, and it was about a suicide, and the son had gone to the uncle, not to the father, in a moment before he, he makes a choice. And Bob was like, if I was the dad, I would be very upset by that. Like, if you had gone to, why not, why not me? Why didn't you come to me? You go to, you go to your uncle. And he's like, I, I just don't understand that. And I realized that I had, he was just too nice. Like he was also do, dealing with his own grief. And so I find sometimes those, those, those dramaturgs that can kind of come in and give you the thing you need in the moment. And then I've also had a dramaturg who's like, why are you saying this, this, whatever, what's this plot? And like really actually just go page by page and go like, does this support the full, like, like the train is driving this way. Does it happen? Does this, like we kind of veer off here, why? And then it was like being aware and I've had someone like almost like a surgeon just strategically give me a bunch of notes that just really kind of relieved me because sometimes you write a draft and you keep that little middle section and you write the, the new draft has new writing on top and new writing on the bottom and it reads through okay. And then someone goes like, what's with the middle part? And you're like, you're like, oh, it's the hangover from the I last watched, draft. I watched a, we, we watched a documentary a few years ago and it was someone had filmed Picasso drawing a painting on glass. So you could see his face and you could watch the painting being done as he did it. And it's a quite a long documentary, but what you watch is he creates this beautiful piece of art and then he goes down to a corner and starts reworking from there, completely obliterating the original thing. And that is a great lesson in art about mm. how not to hang on to something just because it's there yeah. or because you wrote it. It's a, it's a, but it's a hard lesson to learn. And dramaturgy is a, is a very, you know, it's a tricky skill. You know, you, there are lots of people out there who I could, I could never do it. I, they, yeah. I was asked to talk to these playwrights in Newfoundland a couple of years ago and they wrote these little scenarios and I was terrible. My advice was just, and they'd be like, and I say, so what is this play about? And this poor woman, she said, oh, it's about this woman and her two daughters and they go away and they talk about the past and I'm like who, who, does somebody kill somebody <laughs> and she's like no and I said well they kind of have to because you got no play here I, I, I am the worst <laughs> although maybe that's not such bad advice 
That's the worst. That's <laughs> yeah, I know it. It is uh, in this job. I've, 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 I've done a lot of helping friends. I, when I was an artistic director, people reading scripts and giving notes, and um, I've done a lot of that, but just not in an official manner, like a dramaturg who's you're an official dramaturg. And in this new job, I Bob White used to do that, and he was he was his official title was dramaturg, and so. The, the director's office is like, well, you're in Bob's job now, so you, you're you a dramaturg now. And I was like, oh. So there's just been opportunities where I'm sitting with a playwright, like, you know, some pretty prominent playwrights talking about their scripts, Andrea Scott being one of them, and and just like having a discussion about their, their beautiful piece of work. But it's an interesting thing because as a playwright, I understand it's their baby. I understand it's a precious thing that it's a soft, it can be soft and sometimes can be, no, nah, throw it out. That's fine. No, I don't like that. Or, or it, you can you can sense when something is a sensitive thing or it's not really what I'm talking about. Or you start feeling like, I don't want to cross over and I don't want to tell you how to write your play. And I always say to people like, take it with a grain of salt, throw it does, what doesn't work for you, uh, keep what works for you. But like in the end, if my note makes you feel defensive and you want to fight for that thing, that means it's important to you. So then, you know, look at that thing that you are passionate about. But it's a really tricky line to walk. Like, I don't know what, what, how, what your experience was. Well, because I used to be an actor, I feel like I have like a thick skin and I, and I also... I also have a very kind of gimlet-eyed business sense about things, and I know you shouldn't look at your work as like content or product, but it ultimately, do you want people to want to consume this? And if so, then it can't just be for you, mm. in a way. Like, in a way, you have to think, how will this resonate with people who are sitting in the audience? Like, in terms of like, I love, I love that Picasso story because I wrote the Jackie Robinson play in a lot less time than I thought I would. I thought it would take me a year to write it. That's what I promised the artistic director. I said, I'll have it done by November 2023. And I wrote it in three months. And I was like, I can't believe I wrote this 80 page play in three months. And I was so proud of myself. It was, it's, it's, a, it's massive. But then I, I went away from it. And then I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this is, I feel bored by this. I feel like it needs to be ripped apart, studied and put back together in a completely different play. And then when I told my dramaturg, because I have a dramaturg, uh, she lives in Chicago. She said, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I think it's good. Uh, it's a good idea for you to like just reconceive some of the the timeline and, and it doesn't have to be linear and the characters, some, some of the characters seem a little too saintly. Um, let's muss them up a bit. And like, I'm, I'm also, I would also be a little bit wary of somebody who wrote a play, brought it to me or brought it to you and said, it's done. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, it's not done. Yeah. Don't you wonder though why she didn't say that before? Say what? That that she agreed with that stuff, What's like that? no, you know, you you said she you ripped it apart, and then she said, yeah, that's a great idea. And don't you wonder why didn't you say that before? I want. I feel like she wanted me to find my way there instead of being like I instructive suppose. and perspective. Even for when we were working in Frankenstein, yeah. initially my initial draft, there was all these, there was all this text that they were going to do, and over the course of the first two weeks, I started cutting it and cutting it, and I was trying to rewrite it, but I found that all I was doing was cutting it, and in the end. I thought, I don't want any words this time. I, I was going to put words in, but I, I don't want any. I think, I think the, sh the show resonates much better if there are no words. And so I went in that day and I said, almost every fucking person in that room said, oh, you're so right. And I'm like, 
Where were you two weeks ago? <laughs> Why did you let me suffer through this? Because you have to find your I way. Know, I know, I know, yeah. I know. Well, I, 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 I saw this video, John. Uh, it was this university. It was this, a guy was teaching you a university course, and he had to be away, so his friend, went, his friend went in to cover for him. And he was talking to the students, and they were like, how do you deal with writer's block? And he was like, I don't. I don't, I don't get writer's block. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I just write something dumb. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, when I can't think of anything, I just, in the spot where I'm supposed to write, I just write something dumb because I can't fix something that isn't written. But I can fix something that is dumb. That's my favorite part, actually. I mean, I'm so happy when I finish the first draft because then I can work on something that exists. Yeah. Because if it doesn't exist, it's like trying to, you know, like herd cats or whatever. It's like trying to catch something that you don't know where it's going to go. But once it's kind of like, once at least there's a frame there, you can go, oh, I know how to, I, or I can try and fix that. I always, one of my cardinal rules about writing is, is to always understand when you start the process that you're going to write shitty work, that it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And, you, and the more you succeed at writing, the more you sit down at the beginning and go, how did I write that play? I don't know how I wrote that play. I was a complete fake. I don't know how I did it. And, and then you doubt yourself, but you did it because you started. That's, you just have to start writing garbage. Yeah. And then eventually it turns into something, hopefully. Yeah, no one writes a good first draft. Like no one writes the draft and goes, That's well, not there true. it is, That's it's not done. True. I think I've written it. I mean, <laughs> a goodish draft, yeah. <laughs> Arthur Miller did write act one of Death of a Salesman in one night. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's a, a long one person night. in the world has. Well, like, that's gotta be. That's, it was a long, like he went into his little shed in the back. That and plays just, all right, I mean, it's, yeah, you know. It's okay. In terms of that, like maybe you could talk about what is your writing process? Like how do you set yourself up? How do you get to writing? How does that work for you? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I will meander and procrastinate as long as I possibly can before I absolutely have to sit down and write. So, I mean, I love hearing about these writers um, like, you know, like Maya Angelou or, or Toni Morrison and how they would like rent a hotel room that they would always go to. And it was like an appointment that they would have to keep for themselves and they would start writing at 4 a.m. and then they would continue. Into, and I'm like, I, I write when I can. Um, and I usually don't write in the morning. I usually start after one and I can write for four or five hours. But I think one of the things I need to be cognizant of is that I need to be kinder to myself and not think I have to get it all out in one, one like draft and to just like small bites is something that I need to let myself do is do a little bit today. Like maybe try to work on this scene, figure out what the characterization is, like that kind of stuff instead of I need to finish you know, five scenes today, you know, sometimes I have a lot of time to get it done. So I need to be kinder to myself. And I find that I'm better after 12 or one o'clock and then I might write until seven or sometimes I might take a break and then come back at seven and then write until 11. But I'm better at night than in the morning. I think for me, there's kind of a critical lift point. Like, you know, you can walk around with an idea in your head and then the idea turns. You're waiting for the idea to turn into something because an idea isn't a play, Mm. you know, but the idea has to turn on its head and it has to become something really interesting. But for me, um, I don't even necessarily start with a framework. I start with that turn and start to try and develop that. But once I feel like I have the idea kind of sorted out in my head, I write a play in three weeks. But it's a first draft. Wow. 
So, but I have to write it. I have to get it down. I have to finish it because if I don't finish it, I'll do that procrastinating thing and I'll never finish it. And, 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 and to me, that's why I say that second pass at it is a much more, for me, a much more invigorating uh, kind of thing because I have something there that I can develop. Even if I don't like a lot of it, at least yeah. I know, at least there's something I know I, I, you know, I don't have to like. Yeah, I, I, I think, and, and this happens to a lot of people, is people get caught up in the editing. They open the document, they start at the top, and they edit. That's why so many plays, the first half is amazing, and the second half, mm. second halves tend to be weaker because most playwrights <sighs> open their draft and start at the top and work their way down. You get caught in editing. So I, for me, I write, I usually do my best writing when I want to leave. And so whenever I'm ready, I'm like, I'm done. I put a timer on for 10 or 15 minutes and I write that and I'm going like, get me out of here, get me out of here. But I write the best in that last 15 minutes. Ooh. I tend to. The other thing I do is I just sit down. I just do it. Like, the same thing. I just have to sit down and do it and get it out. And to stop myself from actually editing, I start a new draft, like I start a new document and start scene four, whatever, wherever I left off last time. I do that and then I cut and paste it at the end of the day without reading the what I've written before. So I just keep the momentum going without looking. Because as soon as I look back, I immediately want to start fixing it. But I'm like you. That second draft feels so great and editing is so, you're like, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's better. That's better. Oh, that's better. And when I get into fix it mode, it, there's something really that feels really great about fixing that... I can get into that and then by the time I get to new writing, I'm too tired to actually do new writing. So I actually have to trick myself. Blank document, start saying, okay, mm -hmm. what happened last? This is what happened. I don't think I can do, I don't think I've ever, I could ever write a play in three weeks. Well, I probably well, could, but. Uh, you, you also, have, at the same time, you have to, it's not like you're writing all the time because you will get blocked, not in a writer's block kind of way, but you, your ideas start to become, you know, like stale or whatever. Yeah. So I always do this thing. I always walk away. And like, usually I know this because out of experience, peeing is the my best ideas. <laughs> And so I started to think, what is it about peeing? And I was like, it's not actually the peeing. It's actually walking away from that play and thinking about why am I peeing so badly that suddenly my head is filled with, it allows me to open up my head again because it's like in a small way, I don't know if you play Sudoku. Yes. But sometimes you have to walk away. Yep. Because <laughs> you just, you're stuck. And you realize that's kind of a microcosm of what, what playwriting is. If you're stuck, you got to go pee. It's totally that. Uh, I, Brian Quirt, who runs the Playwrights Lab out in Banff, he, he had this um, uh, an American um, scientist who talked about green and blue. And they had done this big study in the United States in New York City and then also like Colorado, and they took playwrights and artists. And they just said, in the middle of your day when you're creating, go out and take a 30-minute walk yeah. and then come back. And what they found is in New York, they couldn't find blue or green. So blue sky, green grass, all that stuff. And they were less productive, even though they went and took a half hour walk, walked around the block and everything. As to someone that was like here, where you're outside and immersed in nature and all that stuff, if you just went outside and even just touched the ground and whatever, 
that you came back and you were more invigorated. So they just found people's output was. Well, you, you, um, Andrea said to me earlier, she said, Earshot, my play Earshot is one of her favorite plays. And she said, how did you come up with that idea? This is about walking away. So I was writing another incredibly shitty play, <laughs> but I have an obsession with noise. And I was like, I was going insane because I don't know what was happening outside. Usually something garbagey, like leaf blowing or something. Anyway, I have earplugs in and a, he and a head thing, a, like a thing. And I went downstairs to pee and I washed my hands and I looked in the mirror and I thought, that's insane. <laughs> well, who is that person? And I thought, it's a person who cannot stand noise. And I threw out that and I started writing Earshot just from walking away. Yeah, that set at the Tarragon for that play That's was incredible. Yeah. That was incredible. Yeah, that was I still remember I was a young actor. I was like, what? And Randy was just like, what yeah. is this? It was all angles yeah. like it, the 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 it, it felt like the how the house had been warped it was, it just, was forced perspective yeah it was he, so beautiful yeah the, our favorite part of that show was ken had made a tiny pair because it's forced perspective the back of the stage looks smaller than the front and yeah, he yeah. made a tiny pair of blue jeans for randy <laughs> then when randy ran to the door randy houston he couldn't get out the door so he ran back to put them on but they when he got downstage they were <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> Ugh, love it. Uh, so we're at about three o'clock now, and and I thought maybe we open it up to some questions if people had some questions. Yes, for here in the front. In other talks, we've heard about how difficult it is for some directors to get permission to make small changes to things. What control do you guys have over your your productions that you made? You have absolute control over the text, but you have no control over how they interpret the text how actors read it or act it, how directors direct it, what position they put the actors in, how if they- People do it to music. <clears throat> Making it into a musical when it's not a musical. Yeah, I, and oftentimes directors will take the, like I always tell young playwrights, don't put any, don't put anything in the stage directions because they don't have to follow them. They can just, the director will come by often and go like, it says that he goes over and he breaks the, like he throws the glass against the wall. He's like, well, I don't want broken glass, so we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do something different. Like directors will ignore stage directions sometimes where sometimes they're actually fundamental to the, to the storytelling, but they don't have to follow stage directions. That's not part of the copyright, you know? <laughs> and then that we get into interpretation, right? It's like, and that's why I said, instead of saying he, he grabs the glass and he throws and hits the wall, just have it in the text where it's like, why did you break a glass? Now there's glass all over the floor. And then they can't do nothing about it. You know, <laughs> then it's, you know, then it's embedded Actually, into the script. In the, in the second edition of a couple of my plays, I had to do a foreword to talk about the acting because when a lot of actors approach my plays, they want to do, they want to put a hat on a hat. They want to make a funny thing funny. Mm. which is a terrible mistake mm -hmm. because the best comedy t is taken very seriously. And, but they try to make it funny and it comes off stupid. It comes off just completely wrong. So I've had to actually put it forward saying, this is how you have to act this play. And they still don't do it that way. Well, it's funny because I, and, and I did that with an emotional play is that I was like, I, this director was having a real problem with the actors. And, and I just said to him, these the two men in my second play, I said, are actually my uncles and they actually don't have emotions. They don't cry. They don't, they have a hard time connecting to those emotions. They have a hard time talking about their feelings. That's the whole point. Because the two actors were like 
bawling their eyes out and like they're very emotional guys and you know really touchy feeling i'm like those are not northern ontario like work in the bush kind of guys they don't talk about their feelings that way and and it kind of cracks something for them because they were like oh but he's talking about these things i was like he is but it's almost like a shopping list like think of it and then and suddenly that clicked but it's almost like I need to a write a good director will be able to read a play. He'll be able or she will be able to look at it and understand what the tone of that play is just by reading it, not necessarily by stage directions. Yep. You know, it's obvious when a play is to me, when a play is a comedy or absurd. I had an actress say to me in the first reading on the first day, Oh, it's a comedy. I'm like why are you even here? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a comedy. So I'm so glad you figured that out. The other thing I would say that we do get some control over is uh, right, uh, you get to uh, write at the casting. And that's just, that can be agent dependent. And sometimes a, if it's a certain theater and it's a certain, there's a negotiation there. And if the theater and the and the director is like, absolutely not, I retain the right to cast who I am, mm. but you can be in consultation with them. It all depends on where they're at. So I've had a couple times where it's like, uh, yeah, we'll need a, uh, Keith needs to be able to confirm the, the actors in the play. And they send you the list, like, here's who we're thinking. And I'm like, you know, yes or no or whatever. And so get a little bit of control there too. And sometimes speaking as a director who's directed other people's work, sometimes you just have to get the writer out of the room because <laughs> They may be pushing you in a direction that the, even the play doesn't want to go. So it's, it's a tricky negotiation. Definitely. I think everyone's trying to do their best job, but that interpretation of what that is, is varies greatly. Yeah. Yes. So the question is, uh, in order to get published, you, you need to have a production. And that place can then also be changed over time, like once they're published they can be added and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that has happened. Like, I, I mean, it's because there's, sometimes there's such a gap between a company saying, yes, we want to publish your play and then the show actually being produced. And between the time of them saying, yes, we want to publish your play and the play being produced, you've had multiple workshops and then you've, you've made changes in the room. Yeah. And sometimes it, the room uh, changes the text because of, you know, actors bring something different to it and you're like, ooh, I want to change that. So sometimes the publisher will have a draft that doesn't reflect what actually ends up on the stage. Yeah. I had uh, uh, Deb Drakeford and Martin Julian were in my one of my productions and they did something so brilliant that wasn't in the script that in the first in the first printing. And when they, they come by for a second printing, so they print a certain number and then they go and do a reprint. And in the reprint, I said, hey, can we add this bit that they did? Like, and I asked them for permission. They were like, yeah, absolutely. And they'd just done something really brilliant on stage and discovered something that made the whole scene much better. And so in the second printing, it's, in, it's, it's been in, written into the script. So sometimes you discover things in a production or something. And also I know that Judith Thompson, as a playwright, uh, if you want to do Crackwalker or something like that, she's also done a bunch of stuff where she's added and done rewrites over the years. And so you'll get the, the script from Canada, Playwrights Canada Press or something, and then you'll get a bunch of addendums, like a list of like, I want these lines changed and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I've got, actually got into an argument with her about that. Yeah? Yeah, because her second edition... I didn't like her changes, and I said you were making this big mistake. I mean, it's up to her, but we had long conversations about that. I, I think most publishers 
wait for a show to be produced. I, I mean, my publisher won't print it until it's been produced once. And I maybe even twice, I don't know. Although recently he seems to have published some play that has never been produced. So I'm right. like, oh, weird. Yeah. And yet he won't do my novel. <laughs> Rude. Because he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> if there are any publishers out there, <laughs> I have a brilliant new novel. <laughs> Another question there was one? Yes, ma'am. So the question is, uh, having just seen Frankenstein and Moby Dick, uh, both are non-textual. The idea of you, uh, the thought of someone else directing, like, do you feel like you're the only one that could direct that show because of it, its uniqueness and the way you've staged it? Well, they could try. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> I think it would be almost impossible because... What you do with that material, the way we work with that material is I have to have all the music in place to begin with. Like even David Coulter's score existed. Now he came to, to, to watch the rehearsals and in case we needed to fix things, but I said to him from the beginning, don't touch anything. And if we need something, then you can fix it. But we work with the, what's there because we use the sound that's in the score, whether it be a musical score or like his, which is more like a film score. We use all the sound in that score as text, as, I, as storytelling ideas. So we look for features in that sound that help the dancers and the actors to express parts of the story that are going on. And so I'm not sure how... I mean, another director could try, but it would be a very, very different process um, because they would be interpreting things in a completely different way. Also, you have a room full of people who are helping you and collaborating with you to do that, to build that story. You know, I've got a, I've got a dance choreographer, I've got a movement specialist, I've got all these people in the room, the actors and the dancers themselves who are contributing to, to when you set out to say, this is, this is what we're going to do they have to try and help you accomplish that. So it's an incredibly collaborative event that involves many, many people. So I don't know how you would, like, for example, the overcoat, which I did, I mean, when we did probably 20 years ago, um, even remounting it ourselves, we made it into an opera and we tried to regurgitate, I hate that word, but we tried to you know, reconstruct some of what we originally did and it was very difficult. Uh, even remembering what we did and how we how we constructed it, and there are different approaches to that to that sound because you're not going to believe this, but that sound score when it came in, it, it's just it's just a cacophony, and the the assistant sound person took it away and made it into an actual score. Mm. It's actually a written score that the play that the uh, stage manager follows. But it means also that all of those actors and dancers have to count through all that material. They have to know exactly when to move where. Everything is timed out exactly to the count of that music. And the stage manager calls her cues based on that score and where they are in that score. She has, by the way, 157 lighting cues in the first seven minutes of that what? show. Yeah. It's like Heathrow. She's like a... <laughs> it's, it's crazy. What she does. Yeah. She's a genius. Well, and, and I would say there are echoes in like Christine Peit, like Petrofenheit, if anyone saw yeah, Petrofenheit, yeah. there are elements of those that I can't imagine, like the overcoat must have played a part in some sort of, 
like embedding of that because I see her work and when I saw her work, when I saw Petrofenheit, I was like, oh, there's the elements of the overcoat in that. The dancers and, and, and movers moving to the sound and to something that's telling a story in a way that... Well, Jonathan Young, as you may know, was yeah. in one of our productions at Studio 58 years ago. And they started to develop out of that. I'm not taking credit for them. They were no. brilliant. But they started to do, develop uh, movement and dance ideas as storytelling elements. Yeah. Um, which can be very powerful. And that's Electric Company out in Vancouver. Yeah. So if there was ever someone, I would feel like in the, in the same world definitely there yeah. there is there are elements in that and yet they, definitely they are stole all their ideas from us yes <laughs> and they are still also radically different so there's something yeah, yeah. really also great about that questions angels in america angels in america by tony kushner mm. yeah when i i saw um i wonder if both of you did you the canadian stage production that yep. was like how many years ago? 30 years ago? It was a while ago. It was a long, long, long time ago. That changed my life. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking about being a playwright then. I was an actor. But I didn't know you could do that with words and people and, and set and lighting. I love Tony Kushner's work. I love Tony Kushner. Uh, he was at the Shaw Festival a few years ago and I made sure I, I went and had him sign all of my plays. I just find his work so ambitious and big and it's political and it's intersectional and it's it's personal. Andrew, and we saw the first production of that ever in the Cottesloe in London, Ken and I. It wasn't a hit. It wasn't even in New York yet. And we sat down in this show and we were like, what is this? And we sat on the side, you know, on the balcony yeah. looking like watching it like this. We didn't move for three and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. That's I it. Mean, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just... Uh, <laughs> love him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I used to say Beckett, but I don't know. I think Beckett's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> you come into that eventually. <laughs> yes. You know, this very sweet friend of mine, he's, he, I sent him a play of mine and he said... This, this um, uh, Alan Williams, who did the original production of uh, Vigil, and he lives in England now, and I sent him another play I'd written. He said, you write like Beckett if he hadn't gone to any good schools or had money to back him up. <laughs> I think I think that's a compliment. <laughs> wow. Um, it's hard to say because, you know, I think most of my influences, the better influences are, are the plays from like, you know, Ionesco, Pirandello, all those plays that kind of like really exploded theater and made theater into something completely different, something that could be unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say Vigil is one of them just because you're on the stage because it was like I was in theater school. Brian Tree came and talked to us. I was like just in awe and that play that first reading of that play was like that idea of being able to tell that story was incredible and then out of that i say december man by colleen murphy like i saw it the can stage virgin version and micheline chevalier directed it and that idea of being funny while telling such a sad like just devastating story was like so funny i laughed out loud the whole time and then i was just in i was just a puddle at the end. I just thought the storytelling was brilliant. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, I would say December Man was like Canadian wise is hugely impactful. Yes. 
So the question is, uh, agents, how do, how do we get one? What is their role in our work? And how does that, how do we navigate that with them? Does that sound right? Okay, great. Well, I can't speak to, uh, I don't know if there is an absolute template for how this works, but I just know that I wrote a lot. I had written quite a few plays and thought, well, I've written these plays and they've been at SummerWorks. Is there, shouldn't I be able to have an agent at this point? Like it just felt like I'm due, right? Um, and it was just serendipity that I was working at this place called the Royal Philatelic Society of Canada, which is stamp collecting. And um, the librarian's daughter who works in theater knew an agent and suggested that he come to see my work. Um, and the honestly, part of the only reason that he sent somebody to see the play, his proxy, is because I was on the cover of Now Magazine. And so I think there was kind of a okay, who is this person who has written a bunch of plays and has this play at Summerworks and is on the cover of Now that I don't know? And so Genevieve showed up and I guess went to my agent and said, you should meet with her. And so I ended up having a coffee with my, with now my, na my now agent. His name's Colin Rivers. But he did not sign me after our coffee. He said, you're doing everything right. What I need from you is for you to get a play produced by a major theater company and then I can represent you because then I can negotiate contracts and then start pitching you to other places. And so that's that's how it happened for me. Um, I'm not sure if that's how it's happened for, for either of you, but that's what it was for me. Yeah, I mean, I love my agent. She's great. Pam Winter, she's a great agent. Uh, she reps me. She takes me out for dinner, which is very important. Mm. Um, and she even takes Ken out for dinner, which mm. is pretty impressive because <laughs> he, he, she's not his agent. Um <laughs> But I, I think agents in this country, uh, anyway, I they don't really hustle enough. Like you, you talk to people about agents, or you talk to agents in New York and in London, and they really hustle plays, and they see opportunity and they grab it. And there's something about that that to me is necessary because playwriting is you know, it's not hustling, it's playwriting. So the last thing you want to have to do then is go out and sell your own stuff. Mm. You need someone to help you out with that. And I think, I mean, as Andrea said, it's kind of sadly a crapshoot. Like if you get an agent, it's kind of weirdly luck. And that's, but it's true of everything. It's true of like theater in general. I mean, you don't just get on the Stratford stage, it's, they're all accidents. They're all weird, you know, and some of them are deserved accidents and some of them you earned, you earned an opportunity to be in a room, but there could be an accident that somebody in that room didn't like the color of your jacket. It, it, there are so many, you know, variables, but, um, you know, and agents are helpful, but they, I wish they would hustle more. I'm constantly calling poor Pam and saying, you need to blah, blah, blah. You know, like with Frankenstein right now, I'm like, what are you doing? You got to do this, you got to do that. Because, you know, they don't necessarily do that. Well, you need to be represented by Colin River because... Uh, oh, no, he's a hustler. He is. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, he so is. So I'm also represented by Colin. Yeah. Because it's funny because I am, I am represented by him, but as a director of new play development, Colin is emails me two to three times a week about all his playwrights. So he's a pain in my ass. Yeah, But I also am like, but he does that for me, which is great. So I see both sides of it and how hard he works for me. Uh, for me, it was, it was the same thing. I did a show at Summerworks in order to get it published. And that basically the publisher said, I, I love your play, I will publish it, but it needs a production. So I did a Summerworks show 
And that's where Martin Julian and, and Deb Drakeford uh, and Peggy Coffey and, you know, like, so I had got a cast. We paid for it all ourselves. I did the production. Nobody came. It kind of whimpered into the night. And, uh, you know, I, some artistic directors and friends and colleagues went and saw it. No one said anything to me. I was devastated. I thought it was just going to go into a drawer and close and be gone forever. What I didn't know is that that then allowed it to be published. I didn't know this, but then when it gets published, it gets uh, sent to the Canada Council for the Governor General Awards. And I was an artistic director at a theater company. It was seven o'clock in the morning. I'm in the fall. It was in October, November. And uh, we had a two week long festival called the Wasaga Chuck Begins to Dance Festival. And I had said to everybody, all my all people who work, I was like, I will open the theater tomorrow. Take a day off. It's the middle of the festival. Everybody relax. I will open the doors and get the rooms ready. Like everyone just take the morning. So I was in the shower at seven in the morning and my phone started blasting off. And I was like, I am going to be there. People need to relax. <laughs> but it was like, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. And I was like, I don't, I didn't do anything. I didn't know, but they had, I was nominated for a governor general award on that through the play, but hadn't submitted anything. Didn't, it's a lucky that my publisher did and I didn't know about it. So I never even knew. And the day it got announced, I didn't even know that that was happening. Like it was such a surprise. And this is a play that nobody wanted to see and no one, it just happened. And the year prior, a friend of mine was represented by Colin. Set, I was like, I don't have an agent. I would let, no one's doing my plays and I don't know how to do this. And she said, here, I'll get you a meeting with him. So he graciously sat down. We had a great coffee. He's like, I gave him both my plays. They were both. I was like, here you go. And he was like, that's great. Sure. Um, I'll read them and I'll get back to you. And then he never did. And I was, dev I was like, well, I guess I'm not, <laughs> guess I can't get an agent. And I was like, well, and then I started looking at other avenues and what else I could do. The day I got the nomination, I got an email. <laughs> Hey, Keith, like, hey, it's Colin. would love to pick this up. And I had a moment where I was like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. No. And my friend, so smart, said to me, Keith, set your ego aside for a second. This guy represents a ton of playwrights. He's always busy. If he's taking interest in you, take the moment, put your ego aside and take the call and meet him. And I am so grateful for that because that opened many doors for me. And Colin does go like, hey, you let me know when you're ready for a commission. You let me know when you're ready for that. And I'll start asking if someone wants that or someone needs that. Or I email him and say, I want to write this. I want to do it here. He's like, great. It, the next time I'm around, I'm going to mention it to them. They know you, blah, blah, blah. And so there's this active dialogue with, the, with him that I've never had with anyone before. And he champions me in places and in rooms and to people and, and in ways that I'd never been before. And again, it was all luck. It's just a. It came. There was a time when no yeah. one would touch me, you know. And there and, are different. And there are different styles too. Yeah. You know, like I mean, different agents have different styles, and some, you know, act in different ways, which is you know how they operate. And that's why I like Pam because I like her style. I like how she approaches people and stuff like that. You know, when I say not hustle, I don't mean she doesn't do anything. I mean, yeah. you know, they they don't have the. I mean, Colin is a very different kind of agent, but you don't know what goes on behind the scenes either. And I can just give you an example. I've been in a room where I'm auditioning actors, and I have, you know, hundreds of actors, and I'll I'll they'll leave, and I'll have like I'll have set aside twenty photographs of actors that I thought. Oh, I think this person, blah, 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 line them up, try to figure out who I think might be best for the part. And I'll, 
say that I, on more than one occasion, I've gone through all of this pile and gone, okay, I think him. I think of all the ones, I think this actor. And then put all the pile together again, and there's another picture of somebody. I went, oh, he wasn't in the pile. Oh, you know, you can drop things and make mistakes, and there's just random stuff that happens, and it doesn't even have to do with the actors. I always say to actors, you know, don't take any of this personally, although you can't help it, but it's like, you know, weird stuff happens. It's a, yeah. Yes. Question is translation. Uh, We own the words, but what's our experience with it? Yeah. I have not been translated. Uh, yeah, I've been translated a lot. Vigils has like, I think, 24 languages. I have no control. I mean, I hope they do a good job. I've seen some video of some productions. There's one going on in Romania, if I, I think right now, that is so awful, I don't even know what they're doing. There's a woman running around with a gun, farting at the audience, and a guy in a gas mask wearing a dress. That's Vigil. That is and I'm not like, the I don't know what I you saw. people are doing there, but I guess Romania, all bets are off. Right. Wow. <laughs> like, but I've seen I've seen some of those productions, and they're and they're really weird. We saw one in Germany. There's a big moment in Vigil, as you know, where there's a reveal. The audience, when they realize it, they gasp and they laugh, and it's a big, big mistake. And when we watched it in Germany, I didn't know when that happened, because it didn't happen. There was no laugh. There was no surprise. There was no reveal. I'm like, this is, what is this? It was like, wow. listen, yeah. Yeah, I, I've had it translated twice now. The National Theater of Mexico is translating my play right now. But I already have friends who speak Spanish who are like, I will do a read of it. We will make sure. And the other one is, it's not translated into another language. It's Maori. Maori Theater Company came to me and was like, would love to like translate it into into our community more so. And so there are just elements that wouldn't be that are Canadian that they would pull out and do that. So that's a different kind of translation. He's like, I want to bring it to community there, but I want them to recognize. He says, because those are my uncles, those are my aunties, those are great. It's just that some of the references, they're, they're not going to understand hockey like the Habs game or something. You know what I mean? So they were like, can we do that? And so we're in talks about There's what no that Maori would look like. There's no Maori hockey? No, apparently not. <laughs> yes. So the question is, in a nonverbal play, what's on the page? Mostly like sketches, notes about what has to happen in every scene. Um, and then I approximate uh, how long the scene should be. Like I construct what the scenes are in what order, what they should be. And then I'll say, this scene should last three and a half minutes. Then I, t- I tell the composer what I think the scene is about, feels like, what's supposedly happening in the scene. And then he writes music based on that information. And then he gives it to me. And then I use the music to create the scene. So they're like outlines. And then I ask Ken, in this instance, to do a storyboard. So every scene we have has a storyboard of what the scene might look like and the the set design of it and where the actors might be at any given time. But that's only a sketch because you really can't make the show outside the room. You have to have all the actors in place and move them because I don't know, some of you may not have seen the show, but at one point, for example, they build a mountain and 
the doctor climbs to the top of the mountain. Well, you can't really write that on paper. And the dancers have to get together and negotiate how that happens. And it takes hours of work of trying to figure out who is in what position so that that can happen. So anyway, it's sort of like a, a combination of those things. But I wouldn't call it a script. Uh, last question. It's a great question. There's talking about trigger warnings and about when we're writing plays is with the reality of that, is anything changing in terms of how we write plays? Uh, no. I, uh, <laughs> you know what? Life has been hard for me. I've had to deal with terrible things and I write them down. And then I, it, I am aware of what is happening and that we have to be more sensitive, that sometimes a person's going to read something that's been triggering. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's something I'm, I struggle with, to be honest with you, because life is hard. Life is hard. Bad things happen. Bad words are said to me, to you. You're going to be wrapped in bubble wrap. But don't go outside. Don't read a play. Don't read a novel, um, which makes me not feel, makes me not very sensitive. Uh, it is an issue that I've been having, especially with control damage. Control damage, which is about Viola Desmond and the, the racism that she endured um, in the 1940s in Halifax. I've had to like censor and change some of my scripts because school groups wanted to go and see it. Um, and the teachers don't know how to talk to their children about racism because they don't want to have to then deal with the parents being like, how dare you speak to my child about the N-word? And it's like, well, I, I'm really not sure what you think we're going to do here. Like, what, what lessons are we teaching people? Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sanitizing that I, I do not, I don't like as a writer. And the Jackie Robinson play, I, I, there's a lot of racism in it. And actually, even my dramaturg was just like, I don't know. There's a, there's a little too much racism in your play. And I was like, yeah, I just feel like sometimes people elevate Jackie Robinson to a, to sainthood and act as though he wasn't he wasn't bothered. But he was bothered. He was very bothered. He died at 52. He looked like he was 82. Obviously, it had an impact on him. And I kind of want that to reverberate in the audience so that they can get a little bit of what it feels like to have that come to come at you when you don't expect it, you don't want it and you can't control it. And if you want to I understand wanting to protect yourself and self-preservation but uh how are you going to understand the the path that i have walked if you've never had to deal with it because you're like i don't want to be hurt and i don't want to feel bad about myself so it's challenging for me yeah i um, it makes me almost want to be more offensive <laughs> makes me want to go on the attack more i i it's not that i don't give a shit about audiences but i want audiences to react in a visceral way I want them to feel something and react to something. If they're not reacting, that's why, as I said to you, I said to that poor writer, who's going to kill who? Because if nothing happens, nothing happens. It's like, it's easy, to, it's easy to milk things down, but what's the point? I mean, the, the whole thing about theater is it's about confrontation. It's about artistic expression. And if, that, if you can't do that, then there's no point doing it. Yeah, Colleen Murphy uh, has this quote that she talks about all the time, and, and I take it to heart. She says, if you can't face Hiroshima, it's by Edward Bond. He's like, if you can't face Hiroshima in the theater, you end up in Hiroshima. And that idea of like, and for me, it's like, you actually have to be really brave and write the thing that people can't talk about. Because oftentimes people can't say that or talk about it, 
But if it's in a theater and you experience it, you have an opportunity to kind of address it or think about it in a way that you may not be able to do in your real life. And so, yes, I understand triggers. And yes, you need to warn people if they can't come in or if it's going to be sensitive. Maybe they've just lost a parent, maybe something like that. But to me, it's like, I would still want to come into the theater and be challenged that way. And I, so as a writer, I have to, I just have to. Yeah, I love to be triggered. Yeah. I, I love it to hit me hard, you know, yeah. and be surprised that I'm in tears because that's part of what the experience is. To me, yeah. that's that's a great night out. Yeah, Fairview. I saw it at the Cannes can stage and there's lots of people very upset about this play. If you don't know, it's got a big reveal that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people and people were very upset. People were screaming in the theater when I was in there. Like, why are you doing this to us? Like, they were very upset. And I was very uncomfortable and I left, but I was like so thankful for being uncomfortable. Like, for days I thought about it, why I was uncomfortable and what it means to be uncomfortable, like the Jackie Robinson thing. Like, it was like, this is what it is to be uncomfortable and what to know, to know what it is. And I was safe. This is the thing. We're safe in the theater. The lights come back on. We go back to our normal lives. It, you don't have to live in that. You don't have to be in that. You experience that. So to me, I think that there's something really quite moving about that. And how much are we watching on TV, film, and on YouTube right now and on the internet? That is way worse. It feels like this is weird sensitivity around theater right now that isn't reflective of what everyone else... Like, how many people are watching all the serial killer stuff? Like, it's the biggest thing right now on all these streaming sites. And it's like, so what are... So what is that? What is it that you can watch that on Netflix, but then you can't come into a theater and someone mentions something and you feel upset by it? But maybe it's because it's real people mm. in a real space and you're breathing with them and it feels real. So maybe that's it. And I think there's something to that. That's kind of the power of what we do. So I find that when I'm writing something, if I'm writing something and then I go, oh, I can't write that. You can't say that. Then you have to write that. You absolutely have to write that. And I went to Montreal last weekend because I went to the um, Jewish Public Library because that's where there are the archives by Sam Malton. Sam Malton was a sports writer who was very, very good friends with Jackie Robinson and his wife, Rachel. And so there are reams and reams and reams of information that you wouldn't be able to see. Otherwise, you have to go into the library and that's when you can see it. And there was a I didn't actually find as much as I thought I would. Most of the stuff I read was quite banal. But there was one little note where Sam Malton was talking about how he he had some disagreements with Rachel Robinson about uh, Rachel Jack's wife that she she had some kind of unsavory opinions about black people. I mean, she being black herself, it was a little bit of, uh, yeah, life is hard for us, but you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and black people need to stop complaining and saying that white people are the problem. And, and I was like, Ooh, that's not, a, that's not the version of Rachel Robinson we have ever heard. Mm. And I thought I got to put that in the play. Yeah. I have to put that because I, I, everything I keep reading, it's all very sanitized and nice. Yeah. And I think that is deliberate. Rachel Robinson is still alive. She's 102 years old. Um, and her, her children are in charge of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So there is a, a determination to always have this, this vision of who he is. But I, I want to show who he was. I want to puncture the myth. Mm -hmm. And they were wonderful together. They were a great couple. But they, the things that they would say behind closed doors is what I want to put on the stage. Because I want people to understand they were real people. Great. Well, I see Julie's over here. She's she's about to she's about to sing us out now. So, ladies and gentlemen, Wrap to the mouse. <laughs>
going to be really quick. Thank you so much for being so real with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again to our guests. Thanks, Julie. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I could listen to Andrea's laugh all the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so sweet. <laughs> I And when I hear Andrea laugh, it makes I immediately imagine her as an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. an eight-year-old girl on the playground. Oh. <laughs> and I just want to be your friend. And I want her to be at every first day of rehearsal. Yeah. I thought that conversation was really cool. Yeah. Because that's, I've, I've I'm on a journey of that becoming less and less scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so to be a person who's only sometimes invited, I imagine that space would be even more costly mm-hmm. to not necessarily know what your invitation contains. Yeah. Or is motivated by? They're so brave. They are. I think my favorite quote from this episode is, if you're stuck, you gotta go pee. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You gotta go pee. You gotta go pee. Peeing is where the best ideas come from. (laughs) It makes me think of, my first love was visual art. And as a Mm. painter, you're often told, take a step back and look at the big picture. Yeah and offer yourself some perspective, a different perspective, because perspective is inevitable, but shifting perspective is, is, is so hard to do when you don't just automatically consider it. So going for a walk and remove, stepping away from your pen and paper or your, your keyboard or whatever it is, and your, your typewriter, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and giving yourself a new perspective the blue green moment, you yeah. know? Yeah. That connects to me. That reminds me of the word I had to make sure I knew, vestigial. Mm. And some synonyms I found really helpful were remaining, surviving, mm-hmm. residual. Mm-hmm. That happens. My connection to that is so is so deep rooted in performance. Get what's that? Is yeah. that from your the first read? Oh, let it go. Is that from the first day? Is that a habit from yeah. from when you were six and <laughs> hiding from your brother? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing with your hands? <laughs> or or the rhythms that you can get locked into in dialogue, mm-hmm. the vestigial patterns yep. in speech, yeah. if you will. I thought that was a that is a lesson I'm taking everywhere. There are a lot of lessons in this that I I, I want to adopt both as a performer, uh, in relation to writers, and as a writer. I'm like itching to go pick up my laptop and start writing so I can walk away from it (laughs) and then come back to it. I also, gosh, I'm filled with, I'm filled with images. I'm seeing you at your laptop and (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about the funeral story from Morris about Mm. that being a a spectacle, a version of a spectacle Mm -hmm. and inspiring some kind of long lasting appreciation for organized event yeah and i think that's a really beautiful invitation yeah there's always been something about funerals that seemed a bit performative not in a negative way Mm -hmm. but in in a very organized way and i love that he offered us that image because i i i don't know that i really would have held on to that yeah, I don't think I would have said the, said that out loud yeah, myself. And yeah. I, when I heard that, and I think it's, mm, I think sometimes when we talk about our experiences as a child, it's easier. We're more gentle mm-hmm. on our past, hopefully gentle mm-hmm. on our past selves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm rough on back in her 20s, but back <laughs> when, when she was a 
11? She was just doing her best. Um, but from the eyes of a child, what what is this? Separate from sadness, what is this? And that idea of removing a lens and revealing sort of the opposite of the Picasso lesson. What happens if I strip away, strip away, strip away? Yeah. But that one left me feeling really... That, that one is early in the chat, but I hold on to the entire time. Yeah. Something else I really loved from Keith's perspective was the role of a dramaturge. And I thought it was really interesting that Morris referenced this sort of jury that he aligns himself with Mm -hmm. um, and how that differs from a dramaturge. And this idea that a good dramaturge talks to you like a therapist Therapist, who just takes your hand and guides you towards the answer rather than giving it to you. Um, And and that guiding comes with thoughtful questions that are meant to make you consider, Mm -hmm. you being the writer, what what is at the core of what you're trying to say and what, and ultimately what you're trying to elicit. Yeah. I just, it, it, it just gave me such an appreciation for dramaturgs. I thought of you so much during this oh. one and I could just list all of the things I loved. <laughs> <laughs> I love this part of the chat. I love this part of the chat, but mostly I love, I love how the three of them come together and have yeah. this honesty and yeah. you can, you can feel it in the room with the, you know, I wish I was there to to ask all my mm-hmm. questions too. But I think this one's far from over. We're gonna hear lots more from Andrea. Oh, Keats yeah. about oh, Morris. Yeah. Don't go far. Yeah. Shall we go read Fairview? Fairview? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm so glad that they didn't spoil the ending. Mm-hmm. Keith talked about that big surprise ending because I didn't get to see the Toronto production this year. Yeah. This year, um, and I really wish I had. But now I, yeah, let's go read it. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Let's Let's go go to your house. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. This event was recorded as part of the Mian Forum in front of a live audience in Lazaridis Hall at the Tom Patterson Theatre in Stratford, Canada. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with the rich mind of theatrical content housed by the Stratford Festival streaming service, Stratfest at Home. It takes you, our listeners, to make this possible. It also takes the help of our dear collaborators. Support for the Mian Forum is generously provided by Kelly and Michael Mian and the T.R. Mian Family Foundation. Original score for the Everyday Forum podcast was provided by Hilary Adams. Production support by Yash Chabria and Chris Von Kleist. Special thanks to Michael Adams, Jennifer Lee, Greg Doherty, Michael Duncan, and Kendallin Bishop. Mian Forum team... Renata Hansen, Mira Henderson, James Hyatt, Danielle Walcott, and forum manager Gregory McLaughlin. Me and forum director, Julie Miles. Director of digital content, Jenna Dixon. Finally, thanks to artistic director, Anthony Cimolino, and executive director, Anita Gaffney. Oh.